Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Abby Joseph Cohen with us, and what a pleasure it is to have her uh, with us, with really the giant of Bloomberg Intelligence, someone with decades of experience in securities research, in media, and also in this new area of technology. Paul Sweeney and Abby Joseph Cohen on what Alphabet and the rest of them wrought. Uh, Paul, I want to open this up with the joy of having Abby with us to what we're observing. They own the ad business 30-some percent, and it's about the Cop Douglas function that you and I studied and Abby lectured on and studied, and the bottom line is returns to scale have disappeared. There's a new math, and technologists are winning with us. What is Google, Amazon, Facebook, the rest of them, when they destroy our normal returns to scale, what have they wrought? What did they wrought? They wrought incredible market share across their businesses. So we just look at the internet advertising business, which is growing 20% a year, and dwarfing television. It's now over $70 billion uh, in the U.S. It's really down to two players, Facebook and Google. And you take a look at e-commerce. What is, who is the dominant player in e-commerce? Amazon, because they can reinvest money. Jeff Bezos reinvests in his business like no one else can can build a scale that no one else can build. And so you, you see the kind of market shares that Amazon has and the power that Amazon has and how they can go into other businesses such as the grocery business and disrupt that just with the, the drop of a hat effectively. So it, the scale we're seeing from some of these technology companies and the next frontier is gonna be the cloud. We've got two or three right. major players in the cloud. Uh, we're seeing just extraordinary scale. When you hear this in almost a generational shift from the returns to scale that we all study, Graham Dodd and Cottle and the rest, does the government need to intervene? I mean, the, the, this, the concentration here of cash flows alone, mm -hmm. does, it, does it demand government interference? Clearly, that's the conclusion from the Europeans. Yes. Where they believe, are we going to be more European? I, I, I think that if the Europeans are European, that also protects us to some extent. And yes, I do think uh, that there is a need for government to at least look at whether there are some elements of this that needs to be regulated. One point that you made has to do with market share, but let's talk about something that we can all feel a little more directly, and that is privacy concerns um, and also some of the other issues that the Europeans have been very active on and that is whether personal data is being sufficiently well protected. Um, and what we did discover is when they implemented their last round of regulatory increases a month or two ago, many of us were affected by it as well. We began to see uh, some of that benefit. Most importantly, uh, they are, and many people here too, are raising alarm bells saying, Let's look at it. Um, and so I'm not coming to a conclusion about exactly what sort of government involvement mm -hmm. or government regulation would be appropriate, but it is something that we have uh, basically been ignoring uh, to this point. Um, Paul, to Abby's point, if you want, if you're an investor and you actually want to remain outside the data privacy issues swirling around a lot of these big companies, is there anyone else apart from Apple that can give you that safety? Well, you know, Amazon effectively, you know, as being, you know, their core e-commerce business, you know, is kind of outside of that. But we've kind of raised the issue that Amazon is actually becoming a significant uh, advertising play uh, for digital advertising, trying to break up that duopoly between uh, Facebook, 
uh, and Google. So we're looking uh, for Amazon to have close to $3 billion of advertising this year, which is small for Amazon, but it's a huge growth rate for them. So it just appears, as Abby mentioned, that you know when you look at the technology space, really over the last 25 or 30 years, starting with Microsoft and their operating system, the Europeans have really taken the lead on uh, regulating uh, the U.S. technology sector. Uh, the U.S. has had a very, very light hand. We noticed a little bit of a change when uh, you know the U.S. Congress brought Mark Zuckerberg in front of them a, a month or so ago. That really marked a change, and it really raised the question amongst investors is, is this the point where the U.S. Congress and the regulatory right. environment is going to step up its view of the technology business? To date, it's taken a very light hand. I yeah, but Paul, if, if you look at Alphabet... I'm sorry. Yep. Just one very no, quick ahead, observation, and, and that is when Mark Zuckerberg appeared before Congress, it became very clear that the members of our Congress were ill-informed right. with regard to the technology business. And it is very difficult to see uh, that cast of characters making good decisions. So it would be important for us to build expertise someplace uh, in terms of people who really do understand how technology works and is affecting right. the economy and consumers in particular. Paul, we talked to Alex Webin last hour about the, the idea that, that the other bets at Alphabet, you know, they're there, and I guess they're important, but it's a core ad business. Why should they stop? I mean, I mean, what is the motivation for Google or, or, or Amazon and Bezos? We talked to Ken Langone of Home Depot the other day of the advantages of competing with Amazon because they keep you going. They're not going to stop. There's no indication. There's no indication. No, we've seen their, their spending. That's one of the issues at Alphabet. When we see the spending in Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, they continue to spend significant amounts of money, you know, double-digit Are they growth. spending it smartly? I think they're spending it smartly because they're spending it on people and technology. So we like to see R&D, and the R&D remains very high at these companies. Uh, we're seeing a lot of spending right. in the cloud. We're seeing a lot of spending on right. talent. They added another 4,000 people uh, over, over the quarter, and these are all high-end engineers. Uh, so the companies continue to reinvest in their business, which I think creates you know, what people like to refer to as a moat. We are thrilled to bring you Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs, and there can be any number of themes to speak of uh, with her. Yes, it's about equity investment. Far and more, it is about intellectual rigor. Her work with the CFA Institute, of which I'm a member as well, her publications within their many academic journals, in, including a rather high level of mathiness as well. That makes her appropriate to speak of the mathematician Cliff Afness out of Tufts, and of course his work in Chicago with Eugene Fama, and this idea of factor investing. Let's partition out what we all learned into momentum, into value, into quality, small cap, large cap, and a few other things, and we'll do better. And obviously, Cliff at AQR has proven he can do this better. But is it by what he does do with factor investing, or is it something that helps him avoid doing things? Which is it? I believe it's the combination, Tom. And I have to say that factor analysis is something that many people are now familiar with. But when Cliff was a relatively young person in the industry at Goldman Sachs, and we discussed factor analysis, and I don't mean to toot my horn here, but I was one of the few people in the research department <clears throat> who was familiar with it. Because factor analysis is a technique that's been around for a long time for things like economic development and economic right. growth. 
what AQR has done, which is unusual and extremely well executed uh, by Cliff and his team, has been to apply the mathematics of factor analysis to financial markets. And it is a question of finding opportunity, but as you point out, also to find risk. This is a discipline because if you're within folks, it's not like the bell curve of your high school class. It's a log normal distribution. And as you know, it's asymmetric where you lose more on the downside than gain on the upside. Factor analysis assists you in losing less. I would suggest. And that's been the charm of AQR. It also helps explain what's going on. Uh, It helps explain why certain sectors, certain securities are performing well, those with high correlation to growth, those with high correlation to exports, those with low correlation to other factors. And this is really important and it's intellectually appealing because it explains things. It's not a magical black box. It actually is a box that helps explain what's happening in the economy and what's happening in the financial markets, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, Abby Joseph Cohen, how should investors prepare and where should they invest to, I guess, be more prepared for the economy of the future? So I don't know whether it moves from, you know, the sharing economy to artificial intelligence and whether that also engulfs driverless cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are so many issues, and I'm glad uh, that you mentioned just a handful of them. I always start with valuation. The valuation of the S&P 500 right now is just about where it should be, which means we really need to look for mispricing, uh, either on the upside or downside, so we can avoid some of those uh, big problems. But as you properly point out, we need to identify longer-term opportunities because they may very well be mispriced. One of the concerns I have right now is there's such enthusiasm for some of these new technologies. They are not priced in a cheap manner in the marketplace. And what that tells me is not that those stocks are going to go down, but rather if there is some unfortunate information, unfortunate development, unfortunate news, even if it's just a quarter or two, there's not much margin or cushion uh, for error. And that becomes a concern. Am I keen on technology? Of course, we all are just taking a look at the impact on our economy, but we also have to recognize that technologies, uh, to use just the parlance and the vernacular, they don't have to be just cool. They actually have to produce a product and one where there's a sustainable business model. But does a bigger, you know, um, player take all? I know Tom wants to talk about Amazon. How much bigger can Amazon actually become and can it completely dominate everything we do day to day? I'm going to go back to one of the first readings I did for the CFA program, and it was a case study of the International Business Machines Company, which in the 1950s and 1960s, many investors at that point viewed that its growth was going to be unlimited. Uh, And if you just did some simple arithmetic, 10 years later, it was going to account for more than 50% of US GDP. Obviously, things do not grow to the sky 
sky, things happen. Um, right. and, and so I happen to uh, not be commenting on the company you asked about, just to say, let's take a look at sustainable models. It's the business right. model, but also what happens in terms of exogenous factors. Well, let's combine in here Ibbotson of Yale with Robin Wigglesworth's great article in the FT on factor analysis. Here's a chart. I use the Dow here instead of the S&P 500, but they look remarkably the same. The Dow, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, the huge depression move there, and then a log move up, up, and higher. And I want to go in here to momentum. I know you're not going to comment on Amazon. I'm just using that as this era's trophy. Momentum is such a dangerous thing. It goes back to Weinberg of your Goldman Sachs, the trees growing to the sky. Are we anywhere near a trees going to the sky? Abby Joseph Cohen factor analysis? I'll tell you what our factor analysis is now showing. What is it? Please? And that is momentum stocks have actually underperformed the S&P 500 by about 10 percentage points year to date. That doesn't mean all momentum stocks, but on average. We've also seen underperformance of about that magnitude for stocks with international mm -hmm. exposure. So what we're basically seeing is that investors with a market that is roughly at fair value are becoming more careful uh, in their selection process. And that's exactly right. what they is, should be doing. Is cash a new asset for you? Uh, cash is an asset for us and something that uh, investors should not be thinking about either in or out, uh, but rather as equities rise and if valuations do not improve uh, because perhaps stock mm -hmm. prices rise more uh, than the earnings uh, underneath them are growing, it's time to uh, raise cash levels. Um, we also have been recommending uh, to raise cash, as I mentioned before, from fixed income because so many fixed income markets right. don't really seem to offer good value at this point. Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you so much. We'll continue this discussion on Bloomberg Radio with Mr. Farrell. We'll do that worldwide, of course. Abby Joseph Cohen is Advisory Director and Senior Investment Strategist at uh, Goldman Sachs. John Farrow in our studios in Washington. I'm Tom Keene in New York. And with us, just speaking with Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs and now head of their commodities research, just by chance, the two of them back to back here, Jeffrey Curry. Uh, and, and, uh, great to speak to you, Jeff. And I want to go more holistic away from what's oil going to do to the basic idea of what do you observe in the commodity markets about the disparity of GDP growth nation to nation, and also the Make America Great boom that we're seeing now in the U.S. What do commodities tell you about those unique 2018 features? I think when you look at the split between copper and oil, it tells you a lot. Oil is a developed market a commodity, and copper and the metals complex are an emerging market commodity. The tightness, the strength in oil is substantially greater than the rest of the commodity complex, which is an indication that the strength in demand is coming out of the developed markets. You know, you, even Europe, surprising to the upside for the first time in many years, while you have weakness coming out of Brazil, Russia, and the rest, rest of the emerging markets. And it's unusual this late in the business cycle that you would see such a predominance of oil over the rest of the complex. And the only other time we saw that was the dot-com boom in late 99, mm. 2000. So it's a pretty rare dynamic to see this playing out. 
So, Jeff, I guess the question we've got to ask is whether the weakness we see in emerging markets that's captured by the copper story starts to bleed into a weaker macro backdrop in developed economies and pulls crude down with it. Do you see that happening? I, I, actually, when we look at what's going on right now, I have to call it the terrible trio. Uh, you have rising rates, high oil, and a strong dollar. Rarely do you ever see that trio. And when you see that trio it is substantially tightening to the emerging market. So it's usually, in a, and again, last time we saw this trio was 99-2000 dear than dot-com bubble where you had you know, extreme strong growth in the U.S. that was not being shared by the rest of the world. And eventually you had the strength in the U.S. propelled through higher oil rising rates end up killing off the emerging market. So I, I'm not so worried about the emerging <clears throat> markets creating um, a drag on the developed markets as, as I am about the developed markets putting more pressure on the emerging markets. Nonetheless, I would say that dynamic has weakened. Oil's and come off to 72 and um, the dollar's weaker. Just something esoteric like live cattle. I mean, 1990 through 2000 went nowhere. A, a rise through the next decade and then the boom, obviously 2010 up we go. And we're back at that base now threatening to break support. And the background story is with tariff talk, there's a huge backup of meat in America that can't be exported. That's one of those little micro data points. How do you treat that at Goldman Sachs? In fact, when we look at what has changed in the in the the the, the trade war dynamic, it has become much more damaging to commodities. These are why? tangible things. And, I, and yeah. here's the reason why: we went from a concept of a trade war. And then sometime in mid-June to July, we went to a physical trade war. And once it became physical, it ceased to be a macro dynamic and became much more of a micro dynamic. Because not only do you see that happening in the meats markets, but if you look at like metals, even down to aluminum, the type of rolled aluminum versus <clears throat> slab aluminum, um, all of these dynamics start to matter. The, the, the president, we featured this, Jeff, uh, uh, about an hour ago. I don't even know if you've seen this in the blur. Tariffs are the greatest. Either a country which has treated the United States unfairly on trade negotiates a fair deal or it gets hits with tariffs. It's as simple as that. And everybody's talking, exclamation point. Remember, we are the, quote, piggy bank, unquote, that's being robbed. All will be great, exclamation point. So you get a cup of coffee with the president to explain uh, that, you know, 1680 mercantile economics ain't going to cut it in the modern world. What do you say to Mr. Trump? I, I think one of the key dynamics in global trade now that separates even the, from the 1600s today is the interdependency of production, meaning that a car, the transmission can be produced in Mexico, the, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the drivetrain is produced in Europe, you know, transmissions in um, India. You put it all together, given that interdependency, it's very difficult to take one of the links out. And you see that with 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 the autos, which I think is going to be a big issue in the U.S. coming up here with Europe, is that yeah. the drivetrains are produced in Europe, shipped to the U.S., the cars are produced in the U.S., and then shipped elsewhere in the world. The SUVs that come out of South Carolina go all over the world, and that's actually European production. So which one are you taxing, European production or U.S. production? Jeff, the supply chains are clearly very complex at the moment. I think arguably, though, what we're seeing in terms of economic impact is it's hurting China more than it's hurting 
the United States of America. This morning, there's a huge question being asked, and it's whether we're at an inflection point with the Chinese authorities as they shift away from deleveraging and towards perhaps some kind of stimulus. What's your read on what's happening in China right now, Jeff? Oh, I think you you hit the nail on the head. It's the deleveraging issue. Deleveraging in its own was not concerning when you had strong external demand. So they could delever and have policy focused on deleveraging as long as they had strong external demand to offset it. The problem now is they don't have that strong external demand. They have a trade war on top of that, on top of the deleveraging, which is why copper has sold off tremendously. You look at the fundamentals of copper today, they're not that bad. They don't warrant the sell-off that we've seen, which, by the way, was as big as what we saw in 96 near Sumitomo. So it's a substantial sell-off. Um, we believe that as you look forward, the market has um, put you know, pricing in a far greater decline in demand of 400,000 tons than what really should be um, the likely outcome going forward. Because I think we look at the policy is, hey, they've reversed course. They're starting to create stimulus. We saw some of that this morning. Um, so that's why we would view copper as being a buy right here. So, Jeff, we've seen this movie a couple of times, quite a few times. Growth starts to pull lower, pressures build. The Chinese don't completely capitulate on their efforts, but they drift back towards pushing the uh, credit lever once again. Jeff, does that still have as much bang for its buck than it did, say, two years ago? No, but I think it, it goes to the, the, to the issue Tom was talking about, micro versus the macro. Um, because of a macro perspective, it doesn't have the same bang as a buck. But if you get down into the weeds and look at the micro, it does. And if you look at what they did when they tried to cool yeah. the, 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 the property market, they targeted high high-cost marginal developers this time around as they're trying to target the rest of the industry. And I think that this is a common theme across just not China, but the rest of the world, is that everything is going down to the micro, like the meat markets, like targeting high-end property developers as opposed to the property market in China. So that's the way they're going after it now, because you're right, hitting it on a macro basis just doesn't have the same bang as it had before. Yeah, and, and we're as guilty of that. I mean, John's not, but I'm guilty of that. I've always gone macro or this micro stuff really uh, really matters. Within this and with the long on copper, you know, the memories of 96, 97, 98, our, our, our EM politics and their linkage to commodities as naive and fragile as they were into August of 1998. My short answer is going to be no on that. And the reason why has to do with the fact that you don't have the same debt dynamic of external um, demand or external debt driven by dollar with the potential for a weakening currency. The only one who still has that set up is Argentina. And you've already paid the price in Argentina yeah. and to a lesser extent, um, uh, Turkey. But, you know, when we think about, you know, what's happening outside of Brazil, Argentina, and Turkey, it doesn't look that bad. You know, India like has- Like Indonesia is Indonesia an example of an example. odd OPEC dynamic. Right. right. Indonesia is not as vulnerable as they were in the 90s? No, not even close, because they've learned from their mistakes. Okay. Jeffrey Curry, thank you so much. Never enough time, head of commodity research at Goldman Sachs. on Washington with tariffs slash taxes are front and center. I'm Tom Keene, New York. Now with this Mary Lovely of Syracuse University and, of course, of Peterson Institute. She writes piercing direct work on stuff that uses blah, 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 blah within the media. Mary, you've just killed it 
with Cohen, Sutton, and Jung on actually what auto tariffs mean. What is the number one message when you go through the mathiness of these new taxes on European cars? Well, the taxes will be on cars that contain content from Europe as well as other places, including perhaps Mexico and Canada. And the net effect very clearly is going to raise is to be raising prices on the auto lots when Americans go to shop for a new vehicle. What is the elasticity? Do we have any history of understanding that if you raise the price of an Audi Q5 by $5,975, what actually happens to unit dynamics? Well, we do know that most of that extra tax will be passed through to consumers. There will be some consumers who drop out of the market or fall to a lower-priced vehicle. Uh, on that, we don't know exactly how many. However, we do have estimates that up to 2% of the uh, workforce in the auto industry uh, could find themselves without jobs as a result of lower sales. So these taxes are high, and they will have an impact on consumers and on the industry. Mary, I don't know whether you would characterize where we are currently as a trade war, but when people do, they're looking almost exclusively at it through tariffs. And to some extent, we could be quite close to exhausting that policy lever at the moment because the United States has made it quite clear they are ready to put tariffs on every single import that comes from China into the United States. The Chinese can't play tit for tat on tariffs. They don't have enough imports coming from the US into China. So I'm just trying to wonder what other sphere will this take place in? How will this play out outside of just tariffs? Okay, we have a lot of room still to play this out. Don't forget, the tariffs have not been fully, nearly fully implemented yet. We just yep. had the first tranche of the first round. Uh, today we're having hearings on the second tranche, or about $16 billion worth of trade would be subject to new tariffs. Uh, when President Trump said he will go the full $505 billion, that's still a lot of pain to be felt. So we've got a long way to go on the tariffs and uh, how Americans feel about those tariffs. China does have other ways to retaliate, including slowing down delivery of our goods. Uh, don't forget, we have companies based in China that sell uh, $300 billion worth of goods to and services to the Chinese economy. My own view, however, is that China will not re retaliate in those ways for a very simple reason. China very much uh, benefits from and values its position in global value chains. It needs new investment. Contrary to popular belief, it is not an innovative powerhouse yet. It still lags most of the world, uh, developed world, in terms of its innovative capacity. It needs foreign investment. It's not going to shoot itself in the foot by making itself uh, inhospitable to foreign investors. So to some extent, some people might argue the U.S. has the upper hand um, with the uh, sort of tension with the Chinese at the moment. Does the United States have the upper hand with the Europeans tomorrow? No. I think in general the idea that the U.S. has the upper hand is mistaken, and it's based on the view that the U.S. is such a large importer that we can affect other countries in a negative way. Clearly we can affect under, uh, other countries in a negative way, and we are. But don't forget, it's us against the whole world. <laughs> that makes us a lot smaller. Uh, let's, in, in, in the case of Europe or China, countries have ways to go around what we're doing. We've already seen some U.S. companies 
saying that they will move operations overseas to avoid these tariffs because once you're free of U.S. soil, you don't have to pay them right. to export. Well, I know so it, it, it really gives an incentive for companies to work around them. Okay, so Mercedes has a Sprinter van. It's like a cargo van, folks. Mm-hmm. And it's made in Dusseldorf, except they tear it apart and take it over to Landon, South Carolina, to reassemble it to get around all this malarkey, right? Well, there are lots of things like that that happen, and it's due to all these tariffs that that uh, change the way firms uh, produce. Yeah. None of them are productivity enhancing; they all are efficiency reducing. So the fact that that's already happening is an example of basically an inefficient type of oh. production taking something down. We're just going to see a whole lot more of it with these tariffs. Okay, with these tariffs, these ta- I hate the word tariffs, folks. It's tax. With these taxes. <laughs> Are we going to see something like be careful what you wish for and that we're going to get the first order condition, but the second or third order conditions are going to kill us? Uh, Yes, this is going to hurt. And we're already seeing it hurting in farm country because many of our trading partners understand that that is a a place of a pressure point for the U.S. We've seen tariffs already on beef, uh, cereal, sorghum, soybeans, fish, crustaceans. Yeah, these are going to hurt, and they're going to hurt very targeted parts of America. And Mary Lovely, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, With Syracuse University and also with Peterson. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.